Previously on Searching for Ghosts. I truly myself, no matter what anybody thinks, I think he'll did it. I think all this stuff was more fun. I was told he was used as a decoy. Okay. To make them go after him instead of after the real suspect. If you've ever witnessed a court proceeding or watched Law & Order at any point in your life, then you've heard this phrase, means, motive, and opportunity. According to Wikipedia, quote, in U.S. criminal law, means, motive, and opportunity is a common summation of the three aspects of a crime that must be established before guilt can possibly be determined in a criminal proceeding. Respectively, they refer to the ability of the defendant to commit the crime, means, the reason the defendant committed the crime, motive, and whether the defendant had the chance to commit the crime, opportunity. Opportunity is most often disproved by use of an alibi, unquote. If the eyewitness account of the truck is true, we have possibly narrowed down the window of opportunity from two and a half hours to anywhere between 15 to 30 minutes. To me, when you narrow down the timeline, you narrow down the suspect list. Since Casey was cleaning up after the party that night, there was not an exact time that she would be home. And one thing everyone seems to agree on is that Casey knew her abductor. While it is possible that the perpetrator of this crime just got lucky in showing up just 30 minutes at the latest after Casey arrived home, it just doesn't seem likely, to me anyway. So out of the big three, let's start with the last one, opportunity. Who would have known that Casey would have been there alone at 12.30 a.m.? I'm Brandon Barnett, and this is Searching for Ghosts. thought I had heard all the stories concerning Casey's disappearance, and I haven't even aired half of them, but they just keep on coming. Since the briefcase episode, I've had new accounts told to me, both on and off the record. I have stories about a still plan in Jackson, Tennessee, a VHS tape that has been hidden for years, and a suicide confession letter from the 1990s. I'm trying to look into all of these, but each story alone would take weeks of investigating. And to be honest, if it weren't for the truck and the timeline, I would have lost my mind by now. That timeline is my anchor. It is my compass. Yes, I will look into everything else, but working backwards from a theory just doesn't ever seem to lead anywhere for me. But I am using the one theory from episode 10 as a baseline. There are two reasons for this. One, because it is basically a compilation of the many stories I've heard. It has everyone involved. And two, the truck and the timeline can be used as a tool to check out many of the things in that story. So let's do a little thought experiment looking at opportunity. Let's pretend for a moment that we know none of the people involved in this case. Let's pretend that we are treating this as a murder investigation from day one. As far as opportunity is concerned, where are the first places we would look in a case involving a 14-year-old victim? Where do investigators always start? With the people closest to them, right? So number one would be the family. 
That's just the way it is. Always has been, always will be. Anyone living in the same house has more of an opportunity than anyone else. If the victim is an adult, they look at the spouse or significant other first. You start close and work your way out. Number two and number three would be boyfriends and then friends, especially anyone at the church that night. Why? Because they would know her whereabouts. The church was where she spent the majority of that night. Again, they would have the opportunity. Someone at that church could show up at Casey's house just 15 minutes after she got home. No problem. It wouldn't take a lot of calculating to figure that out. But now let's get back to the specifics of the case. I know that it is difficult to keep up with the names here, so here's a refresher of the two main persons of interest. Mr. X is Mark Burns, and Mr. Y is Pete Hill. Remember this from episode 10? I mentioned in the last episode that Lucas and I were about to take this up a notch. Well, here it is. We have been contacted separately by a source who went on the record with us both. And this source's theory goes where our investigation was leading us, to Mr. Y. I have yet to get into a lot about Mr. Y, but this is what I had learned before I ever heard the theory from episode 10. According to accounts from Kathy Joe early on in this podcast, Cindy had always felt that Mr. Y was the person who did this. When the search started, that was the first place Casey, uh, Cindy wanted to look was Pete Hill. And he's in prison right now for uh, trying to kidnap, kidnap somebody at a store or something. A young girl. Uh, yeah, I think he's still in there, though. But uh, And he was, he was another charismatic sales He was scary. He, 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 but he had, that, uh, he had that pretty boy look. Right. Very, uh, I knew one of his wives that was the beautician. Gorgeous women, always married, always. Cindy and Steve were at a party at a house in Humboldt that night. Mr. Y was allegedly at the same party. The house that Don and Cindy scoped out with binoculars was the party house. The aerial maps that Kathy Joe and Cindy went to get were originally for Mr. Y's property. And he ended up building a levee up, and Cindy just knew Casey was in that levee. And she went out there and talked to his wife at the time, wanted to see if we'll get the police out there, and she said no. And then me and Cindy went to Huntington and got a map, an aerial map, because I don't know who it was. Somebody got the helicopter. And the helicopter, instead of looking at Pete Hill's house and that levee, it was able to see dead bodies underground, something that they put off. But uh, instead of going over Pete Hill's house, they went over Mark Burns' house, which they didn't find nothing. Then enter our source with the story about Cindy and Mr. Wise's interaction at that house party. And she told me that her and her husband were at the same party that Pete, Cindy, Steve, Take all of that into consideration. You have Mr. Y asking about Casey and leaving the house party early. That's how he might know approximately when Casey would be home alone. 
But there has always been one problem with the account given about the interaction between Mr. Y and Cindy in episode 10. According to Kathy Joe's recollection about what Cindy told her about that night, Cindy and Steve passed Mr. Y in the driveway at the party. He was leaving as they were showing up. Okay. Then they went out Rusty's house, and they said they seen Pete Hill. It was raining, and they passed him in the driveway, and they just went on into Rusty's house, which they might have been going in there to say bye to him. I don't know. But they said they was looking for Pete Hill. I never thought to ask Cindy, though, why were they looking for Pete Hill? You know, I never did. I've heard from another source that Cindy has recently recounted a similar version of the story where they passed Mr. Y leaving the party. So without this interaction, Mr. Y wouldn't have had a bead on Casey's whereabouts. It doesn't mean that he still couldn't have done it, but it's not the smoking gun that the I gotta find something to get into statement was. But I've heard another account that Cindy recently gave stating that they ran into Mr. Y in a bar, and that's where a conversation did take place. So I wanted to try to see if I could figure out the timeline of Cindy and Steve that night to see if I could place them anywhere with Mr. Y. I found a source who worked at the City Cafe in Milan. This thing does not make sense. I'm trying to figure out, because Pete Hill's name gets brought up a lot, I'm trying to figure out how the hell he knew that Casey would have been home alone. And from what I've been told, they missed each other at that party. They were both at that Sykes party. He didn't happen to be there with them any of that night at that bar, was he? This source said that Cindy and Steve were, quote, there all night, unquote, or at least until it closed at midnight. Steve was shooting pool at a bar either next door or across the street from the city cafe, but the city cafe was where they were based that night until midnight. My source says that they asked her to go to the party in Humboldt with them after closing, but my source declined. I asked if Mr. Y was there, and my source says she had never seen Mr. Y that she wouldn't know who he was if he knocked on her door. Then I tracked down Rusty Sykes, who threw the party in Humboldt. His son had been seeing Casey, and was mentioned in a Jackson Sun article as being cleared of having anything to do with Casey's disappearance. Later in the article, Cindy also cites receiving this information from law enforcement officials. Talking about Cindy, quote, She too found out from law officers that Casey had a boyfriend who admitted he'd had sex with her for the first time two weeks before she vanished. Unquote. Cindy was also told by police that this boyfriend was not involved in her disappearance. Mr. Sykes was reluctant to talk to me at first. He stated how they have been hassled over this in the past, and that he and his son had talked to the FBI for 10 hours back in 96 and were cleared. I assured him that I was just trying to piece together a timeline for that night to start separating fact from fiction. Because Cindy and Steve were at your house that night. But I... All right, so I just need I just need to patch in a timeline, man. Ain't nobody accusing you or your son, but your name keeps coming up as far as the, the place of where they were. And a timeline would... And here's the rundown of the timeline. Cindy and Steve arrived at the party at approximately 11.30 or midnight. They left at 2 a.m., drunk as a bicycle, his words. And according to him, Mr. Y had left by 10 p.m. Now, there is no way he could have passed Steve and Cindy in the driveway that night, if this is true. But this is more in line with Cindy's accounts than the theory from episode 10. And this doesn't clear Mr. Y of this, just because he didn't have the conversation with Cindy asking about Casey. But it definitely lessens his chances of arriving at the house 15 to 30 minutes after Casey. Again, unless it was just happenstance. Mr. Y was a car salesman, 
who always drove sportier cars. Some have even said he wouldn't have been caught dead driving a pickup truck. So the reason that I thought Mr. Y had a better opportunity than Mr. X to commit this crime is starting to unravel. Although no one has been able to give me Mr. X's whereabouts that night, I do know that he was questioned multiple times by police and even passed a polygraph, as mentioned in a previous episode. A Lavinia man questioned by authorities several times about the disappearance of Mylantine Casey McDaniel several years ago has been convicted on other charges of attempted murder and sentenced to 11 years in prison. Milan Police Chief Ken Nolan said Monday that Burns was well known in the Gibson County area. We had reports that Casey visited the house several times before her disappearance. Burns was questioned, took a polygraph test, and passed it, the chief recalled. We had other information to suspect him, but were unable to prove it. Unquote. So I decided to reach out to former lead investigator Jerry Hartsfield again to see if he could remember Mr. X's alibi. Where was did Mark Burns have an alibi for that night? I'm trying to figure out where yeah. Mark Burns. Mark Burns, he, he didn't have an alibi for nothing. <laughs> but while talking to him about the opportunity Mr. X did or didn't have, he starts telling me about another of the big three aspects of detective work regarding Mr. X: motive. A motive that I had already scratched off my list as urban legend until now. Well, I knew, I know for a fact that Cindy was in debt to Mark Burns for drugs. You do know that? We proved that, yeah. Really? She, she owed him. And uh, I understand Mark had put the pressure on him. Do you, so, do you remember that Mark? Mark's not going to tell you nothing. I mean, he's going to. Yeah. Do you remember the amount? Uh, no, it was a pretty good dollar, I think. I would like to invite everyone to Candles for Casey, a candlelight vigil being held on the 21st anniversary of Casey's disappearance. It's Wednesday, August 16th, 6.30 p.m. at Milan Vineyard Church. 1076 Wall Street in Milan, Tennessee. We want to pack the house. I'll have a link to the Candles for Casey Facebook page in the show notes. You've been listening to the Left of Nashville Podcast Network. Mm-hmm.